so for me it would be it would be a restoration of the faith that I have always had in my country you know as a as a politically engaged patriotic American who sees a lot of flaws in the country um, but also sees a lot to admire in it it's been a tough few years Welcome to another episode of America Explained, the podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. Hello, I'm Andy Gawthorpe, a historian and columnist, and I'm the host of America Explained. We've got a great episode coming up today, but first I'd like to tell you just a little bit about the show. America Explained is a new podcast. It's a family-run podcast, just like Grandma and Grandpa used to listen to. And that means we're starting out small, and we'd really benefit from your help as we try to grow the show. Please remember to subscribe to America Explained so you always see new episodes in your feed. There's also an America Explained Facebook page, where we post written commentary and where we're building an international community of listeners. If you really want to help us grow, consider leaving us a 5-star review in iTunes or whichever podcast platform you use. This helps us find new listeners and it's a great way to grow the podcast. We'll be so grateful for this help. In the meantime, enjoy today's show. And remember, you can always email us on producer at america-explained.com with any questions or comments. So if you're like me, you've probably been following the news about the presidential election pretty closely. And you'll have seen that the main news is that it really looks like Joe Biden is heading for a pretty convincing win in the election. So if we look at the polls, he's 10 points ahead in the national polls, but he's also leading by convincing margins in the swing states, which are going to decide the election. So he's 3.5 points ahead in Florida, he's seven points ahead in Wisconsin, six in Pennsylvania, eight in Michigan. These are all states that Donald Trump won in 2016, and they're states that he really needs to win again in order to, to keep the presidency this year. So just taking these polls at face value, it really looks like Biden's a sure thing to win in two weeks. But I think we all remember that at this point in 2016, two weeks before the election, nobody really rated Donald Trump's chances very highly then, but then he won. So a lot of people are wondering if this year could be a replay of 2016. Now, there are some pretty good reasons for thinking that that's not what we're seeing here. There were basically two things that happened in the final two weeks of that presidential campaign that that led to the surprise victory for Trump. One of those was that in 2016, there were still quite a few voters who were undecided two weeks before the election. And they, you know, most of them or a large number of them swung to Trump in those last two weeks. This year, there's just not that same number of undecided voters remaining. That means that if Trump is going to produce a swing in his direction, he has to win over a large number of Biden voters. That doesn't really look too likely at this point. The other thing that happened in 2016 was that there was a polling error in some of the key swing states. So this error was only about two or three percent. But when you combined it with this swing towards Trump, it was just enough to put him over the line. But this year, even if there was a polling error of that size, 
it still would mean that Biden would win the election. So there would have to be a really, really enormous polling error at this point for Trump to win. That's not to say that it can't happen, but it would be something that's very, very unlikely. So the state of the race raises kind of two questions that we're going to address in this episode of the podcast. The first is whether we should be taking these polls at face value. So whether we should believe the optimistic picture that I've just painted Are there perhaps some other factors lurking in the shadows of the data which makes this picture look less positive for Democrats? But then we're also in the second half of this podcast going to put those doubts aside and consider what would it mean for America if what we see in the polling data is true? So if Democrats do win a landslide victory, what's that going to mean for American politics over the next four years? In order to discuss these issues, I talked to someone with a long history in Democratic Party politics, Karen Robinson. Karen was the regional field director for Barack Obama's campaign in Northern Europe in 2008. That meant she was working to encourage votes by Americans living in Europe. She's twice been elected the vice chair of a Democrats Abroad UK. She now hosts a podcast called Democratically, which is all about the 2020 election. And Karen's also fundraising for Democratic candidates over at our website, which you can check out. So, Karen Robinson, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. In the introduction to the episode, I talked a little bit about the current state of the polls and how good it looks on the surface for the Democratic Party. But there's also some reasons to question the rosy picture that we see right now. And I think it's important to give these their due while also keeping them in perspective. But I wondered if you could talk me through some of the doubts that you have in your mind right now about the picture that we're seeing in the polls. Sure. Um, And I think, you know, I should caveat all of this with saying, first and foremost, that, you know, all of the data suggests that Democrats are in a very good position to um, to win the presidency. um, And indeed, that we are looking increasingly in a good position to take back the Senate. So, um, you know, but being Democrats, we never quite take that as the answer. We've always got to poke under the surface to find something else. Um, because we, we, we're convinced that uh, uh, we, we'll always lose somehow or other. Um, and to be fair, I think there are some good reasons structurally why Democrats um, have good reason to be pessimistic about um, their prospects in a, in a free and fair election in the US, let alone um, the possibility of electoral manip- manipulation. So um, I think the things, there are, there are kind of two categories of things that I think we need to worry about. One is kind of the ways in which this election is different than other elections mean that it's hard to predict what the impact of some of those things will be. Um, most notably, of course, this is a pandemic election. We haven't had one of those for a while. Um, and as a result of that, those of us who have been involved in Democratic Party organizing for a long time will know that at this time of an election cycle, normally it would be very intense face-to-face voter contacts. We would be doing door knocking, we would be doing very big events with both the candidate and lots of candidate surrogates to try and kind of get our people excited. And then there's the other category of things which we can maybe talk about a little bit, which is the we could win the election and president and Trump might try to still remain president. And it's kind of what do we do with that whole category of problems that winning might not be enough. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I want to come back to that topic in, in a minute, if we could just put in a, a bookmark in it for, for the moment. But the, the, there's another another category of uh, doubts that we hear sometimes as well. And some of these is to do with polling, right? So 
you know, we know that in, in, in 2016, there was kind of a two or three percent polling error in, in some of the swing states. And it doesn't seem at the moment that really any of the crucial states are at the currently in a situation where a polling error of that magnitude would, would actually swing the election away from Biden now. But we also sometimes hear hypotheses about, I guess, two things. So the first is what are sometimes called shy Trump voters. Now, I've interacted with many Trump voters and I've never really found them to be they too shy. shy. <laughs> yeah, they don't seem too shy. But the idea basically here is that there's something called social desirability bias. So when pollsters talk to individuals, they don't want to say that they support Trump, even if they do. And then the the other kind of hypothesized polling error is to do with whether pollsters accurately measure the views of less educated white voters. In 2016, there was this huge uh, education gap in, in who voted for who between Clinton and Trump. And it did seem that a lot of this, the, the errors that existed in the swing state polling was to do with not reaching this, this constituency of people who were very avid Trump supporters, but seemed to have been underpolled. I wonder if, if you place any credence in, in these ideas. So those are, those are great questions. Um, so taking those things in turn, the first thing, um, which is the shy Trump voter effect, um, I don't want to utterly say it's impossible that there's any truth to it, but I have seen, and I've looked, I have seen no evidence for its veracity. I have no, we can't find any reason to believe that is the case. As you say, Trump voters don't anecdotally, but also in the data, they do not seem to be shy. Um, and, you know, things like you can compare um, if this theory were true and that it were social desirability bias that was driving some kind of reluctance to talk to pollsters about this, you would expect a couple of things to see to happen in the data, which we're not seeing. One of which is, for instance, you might expect that Internet polling might be a little bit better for Trump than landline polling because people wouldn't want to tell the pollster that, but they don't mind telling a computer in secret. And that's that's not the case. We're not seeing that divide in the data. Um, you know, it's a couple of other things. But, but but basically in 2016, almost all of the disconnection between the polled expected result and the final result was traceable to the other phenomenon that you mentioned, which is um, a, a failure of pollsters specifically to capture um, white voters without a college degree. That that was a, a specific demographic that A, turned out more than it was expected to in 2016 and voted more heavily Trump than it was expected to in 2016. And don't forget that it was a very, very narrow um, electoral college win for Trump. So we're talking about the, a margin of about 100,000 voters total in three critical states. So very easy for polls to, you know, even by being slightly wrong, make a big miss under those circumstances. There is possibly another thing, um, another reason why Trump's voters might be underrepresented in polls, um, which we won't know until after the election. And that would be just response bias, which is a, which is a normal thing in polls that candidates whose people who support candidates who are having bad news cycles sometimes don't like to talk to pollsters just because they feel a bit down or depressed um and that you know that usually winds up being things like a bounce so if somebody's seen to perform badly in a debate then their opponent seems to do better in polls for a little while but that's yeah. or, or that. if they if they catch coronavirus maybe <laughs> For example, you know, if they have a series of bad news cycles in which they screw up a debate, then catch coronavirus, then just, you know, so Trump's had nothing but bad news cycles. So so that could be, which would be slightly different than a shy voter effect. It would be more like a depressed voter effect, right? 
But then you have to ask yourself, are those people going to vote? Right. If they're supporting him, but they're just bummed out about it. it, How how enthusiastic are you? To return to a topic that that you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago as well, and and something that I've been thinking and, and actually writing about a lot over the past few months. And this has been these concerns that we've had that Trump and the Republican Party more broadly may try to subvert the result of the election in some way and stay in power regardless of a loss. And the the starting point for this is that it, it seems inconceivable that Trump is going to accept that he legitimately lost the election, you know, especially given he can't even accept the fact that he lost the popular vote when he won the presidency in 2016. He continues to claim to this day that three to five million ballots were cast illegally and this cost him the popular vote. And it's simply a lie that this degree of fraud exists in the US election system. But the, the claim has become very sinister when we combine it with other stories that we've heard about how Republican officials are preparing to contest the results in states where the margin between the two candidates may be very slim. So there's an article in The Atlantic by Barton Gelman, I guess it was a month or so ago now, which suggested that Republican officials in Pennsylvania had discussed seizing on a tight race and accusations of fraud. It, this is baseless accusations of fraud, which they have spread to have the state legislature, um, which they control, just award the state's electoral college votes to Trump, even if he loses the the vote in Pennsylvania. I wondered, as we sit here today, how worried you are about these sorts of scenarios? And also, is that worry lessened by the fact that we seem to be heading for a fairly clear victory by Biden? Mm. So the answer to how worried are you is always, I am very, very worried, (laughs) but I'm going to hypocritically say that's not necessarily a reason that you should be worried. Um, And what I mean by that is that, uh, and and particularly a month ago when that Barton Gelman piece came out, um, and and there have been a lot of conversations around this um, since then, the, the good news about this question is that it is Although Trump has certain structural institutional levers at his disposal to try and cheat and lie and steal, ultimately, he, the presidency ends on the 20th of January 2021. He does not have authority to decide that he is staying in office if it is declared otherwise. The reason why he's been talking about it is because he's trying to normalize the idea Um, both amongst his own supporters and to some extent in the media and the wider public, that there might be something shady and that maybe he's got some leg to stand on. And what I think is really important is that those of us who talk about the election make very clear that A, he doesn't have that authority, it's not in his gift at all, um, and that we will not stand for an attempt to unlawfully, unconstitutionally subvert our democracy. And I think it's important for all of us to say that. I think it's particularly important for, quote unquote, mainstream Republicans to say that, which is one reason why I've been very glad, even though, you know, ideologically we're opposed on a lot of grounds, I've been very glad to see lots of prominent Republicans coming out Um, formally endorsing Biden and speaking out against Trump, including a lot of former members of his own administration. What Trump is doing with these claims is that he's preparing a large section of the country to consider Joe Biden to be an illegitimate president, I think. You know, that he's, he's able to convince his supporters at least that the electoral process is, is marred by fraud. Biden's not a legitimate president. And it does seem very scary to contemplate, you know, not only what that might lead to in terms of violence, you know, which you've already talked about, and we 
you know, we've seen instances of, of, of violence by Trump supporters this year. But then also just how hard it's going to be to govern a country in which, you know, a third of the population or, you know, maybe 40% of the population don't consider you to be a legitimate president. Yeah, and and that's like, to be fair, that's a problem either way, isn't it? I mean, um, you know, Trump is finding it very difficult to govern the country because most of the country doesn't support him. Having said that, Trump is not actually trying to govern the country, so the problem doesn't arise that much. (laughs) And what I mean by that is he he legitimately isn't trying to pass many policies or, you know, solve problems or pass legislation or, you know, tackle things like the coronavirus. He's, He's fundamentally not governing. And if you want to not govern, then it's quite easy to do that when the majority of the country is against you because you don't need their support. You don't need the goodwill of your allies. Whereas I think Joe Biden and the Democrats very much would like to govern the country. They have some ideas of policies they would like to work on. And they would also just at an institutional level, they would like to make the federal government more effective again. So this is a great segue to what I wanted to talk about next, which is what Democrats might actually do if they win this this landslide victory um, in November. So we'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about that. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. Let's for a moment cast aside our doubts and imagine a world in which the polls are essentially correct. So Biden wins the popular vote by a large margin. Democrats take control of the Senate uh, with, say, 52, 53, 54 seats, and they retain or even expand the majority in the House. You know that this is kind of the happy place that I like to go to in the evenings, you know, with a glass of wine (laughs) and like manically refreshing the latest forecasts. It's my happy place anyway. But say this comes true. So for some of our listeners who might not be so familiar with the American political system and and its various institutions, could you talk us through the sort of power that this hands to Democrats to achieve things, but then also the barriers that might still remain to their agenda? Sure. And actually, the the two things are linked um, because the American system is set up with quite a lot of veto points for a party that wants to try and implement its agenda. Um, and those veto points tend to skew to the favor of more rural states and smaller states, um, which tend to be Republican leaning states. So on a number of levels, um, Democrats come into most problems of government with um, some institutional disadvantages. Um, now, one of those is the way that the Senate is skewed. Now, the Senate is conservative leaning in the first instance. I will come back in a second to how all of this comes down to our, our agenda Um, But the Senate is conservative leaning anyway. And then in recent years, a tradition has evolved. This is, you know, not historically how the filibuster has worked. But in recent years, a tradition has evolved whereby all votes that can't achieve a 60 vote majority are treated as unpassable. Um, And that creates huge problems because you simply cannot pass any legislation of any significant import Um, if you require a 60 vote majority in a closely divided country, especially when one party is strongly disfavored. 
there's also a flip side to filibuster reform as well that that many people on the left also worry about, which is that you know when you create this tool for your own side, then you're also potentially placing it within reach of the other side as well. And I I wondered if if you give any credence to this concern that eliminating the filibuster might actually turn out badly for the left in the long run um, or whether you think that it's worth it? So I think two things about that. I mean, I think, first of all, that's fair, right? Like it's it's fair if we lose elections fair and square and the party that takes power um, now has a legislative majority because we lost, then to some extent it is fair that they enact their agenda. And where I feel okay about that is in some respects, because although I hate Republican policies, I also know that many of them are very unpopular. So I don't necessarily think in the long run that it would be to the Republicans' advantage to be able to enact their agenda. And the second reason why I'm less concerned about this is that um, kind of connected to that fact, the Republican Party itself has changed quite a lot over the last couple of decades. And um, especially in the Trump era, but, you know, leading up to the Trump era, I would date it back to sort of the Tea Party movement and so forth. And it has increasingly, there are not governing ideas on the right. There are sort of trolley ideas, right? There are sort of, they they, they don't necessarily, I mean, they have things like tax reform, right? They always want to cut taxes. So that, that's one thing that President Trump was able to deliver. But I think it's very telling that, for example, they don't have, they cannot come up with a healthcare plan because they don't have a vision for how healthcare should work in the United States of America. Um, and if they get themselves together and come up with some policies that are popular and that people want to pass and they win an election on the back of that, then I'm okay with it. I'm just not okay with them winning by undemocratic means, um, unsmall d democratic means and then enforcing unpopular policies on people through or, you know, preventing popular policies from being implemented by using a, a, a 60 vote uh, threshold in the Senate. Right. Yeah. And I, I think this discussion is so interesting, you know, especially to, to listeners in Europe, because it really underlines the extent to which the American political system has been stricken by paralysis for, for some time now. Completely. In in most countries, governments campaign on an agenda, they win power, and they're able to enact that agenda. Whereas what happens in the US is that country, uh, 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 parties campaign on an agenda, they win power, they're incapable of implementing that agenda, and then everyone just sits around and blames one another for, for, for why that, that's the case. So this, this, this seems to be a really effective way of undoing the logjam. And as you say, it can possibly save the Republicans from themselves as well to, to an extent, you know, because you know, right now you have, you have people like, I think of Josh Hawley, the, the senator from, um, from Missouri, who's, who's held up as kind of a, a thought leader and kind of a future leader of the Republican Party. And he sits around drafting bills condemning, you know, the New York Times for publishing the 1619 <laughs> Project, right? And, and, yeah. th- and th- this isn't something that addresses the, the concerns of everyday Americans. And in a way, Republicans are able to campaign on these kind of cultural grievances rather than on a concrete policy agenda because they're never forced to actually implement a, a concrete policy agenda. So I, I wonder how this... Um, so this links to, to a, a, an area that's been talked about a lot in the Democratic Party at the moment, which you alluded to, which is small d democratic reform. So we can think of the, the filibuster of, as, as one of these. 
But the, the last few years have really focused attention on many different imperfections in American democracy, I think. So, you know, the GOP has won the presidency again after losing the popular mm. vote. We had this really bad round, round of gerrymandering in uh, 2010. There's been this explosion of money in politics after the 2012 Supreme Court case, Citizens United. The general ethical shoddiness of the Trump administration, all of this controversy around the Supreme Court. And I wondered how important you think that the reinvigoration of American democracy would be for a Biden administration. And what are some of the other things that they might do in this area? Yeah, so political structural reform is probably the number one issue that I am deeply concerned about right now because of the reasons that we've just talked about. Um, I do not feel that American public life is functioning like it's not even functioning badly. It's just not functioning. Um, and so I'm, I'm very strongly in favor of us sorting out the systems. I mean, effectively, people don't realize this because they think of the United States as a young country, but we have one of the world's oldest constitutions, right? We have the one of the world's oldest durable written constitutions, and it was designed for a world in which their big concern at the point of the founding was how long it would take people to travel to Washington to cast their votes, right? This is not a big problem that we're dealing with right now. But... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I, I think these men, um, you know, were very brilliant in their age and very forward thinking in their age, but they did not expect the words that they wrote down to be still operating hundreds of years in the future. They explicitly said so. So I think there are, there are a number of things that I would look at. Um, the Supreme Court is one that I... Um, you know, is is a particular concern. Obviously, we have a Supreme Court hearing going on right now, um, which if if Amy Coney Barrett is approved in her nomination in this extraordinary time, kind of in the middle of the election, she will form a six vote majority for the conservatives on the court, um, six of six to three. And when you bear in mind that since what since like. 1992 only one democrat only one republican president has won a popular vote majority um and yet they have basically effectively a supermajority on the supreme court that doesn't feel right now a lot of people don't realize that the court the number of people on the court is not constitutionally predetermined it's meant to be decided by um by the the members uh by by, by the legislature and it has had different numbers at different times. Of course, quite recently, it was an eight. It was an eight-member court because the Republicans refused to approve uh, President Obama's nominee. Um, but at times in the past, it's been it's had more members. It's had fewer members. So, so I'm very interested in in looking at some form of Supreme Court reform. But I and I I take the challenge of those who say, oh, well, if you do that, then you know Republicans will just do it again. So I'm like, okay, that's fine. In that case, let's work together. You know, this should be an area where you can envision a version for a version of the court that's absented from partisan rancor. Um, one popular um, recommendation that I've seen is to 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 pass a law that says that the court will compose of I think it's 15 or 16. I can't remember. Um, uh, like 15 year terms, I think it is. And that each president will therefore they'll be staggered and each president will therefore automatically get two nominees for per four year term. And so um, it kind of just deflates the tensions of it. So there are all kinds of interesting ideas that you can work with that, you know, in theory, you don't necessarily work to one partisan advantage or the other. They just work towards democratic legitimacy. Of course, right. Republicans don't think they can win elections as, <laughs> in that way. So they prefer <laughs> systems of power that that are skewed. Um, but that's what I would look at. So that's one thing. Other things I would look at. 
Um, I am a voter in the District of Columbia. Um, I have no senatorial representation whatsoever. And my congressional representative, Eleanor Holmes Norton, cannot vote in Congress. That doesn't seem right to me. Um, and, you know, it's although it's only a city, people say, oh, it's, you know, why should it be a state? It's the size of a city. It has a larger population than I think six or seven existing states. Um, and there's just no there is no good faith reason why you would ever say that the you know, I think it's 700,000 American citizens living in the District of Columbia do not deserve a senator. So um, I would look at that. I would give Puerto Rico the option of becoming a state if they so choose. They may not want to. Um but give them a referendum, give them the choice. D.C. residents absolutely want to become a state. Okay, so we're just going to take another quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about the impact that a really big win might have on the Democratic Party itself. You're listening to America Explain, a podcast about American politics, foreign policy and culture for an international audience. Like it? Then tell a friend and help us grow. Do, 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 do. So um, I, I'd, I'd like to talk about the psychological impact that a really big landslide win might have on Democrats and on the party. So I think over the last few years, there's been this real kind of exaggeration of Trump's political strength. It's partly a, a, a function of the fact that he makes himself so omnipresent in American politics that every issue becomes about him. You know, he's always on the airwaves, he's always on Twitter. And this has led, I think, to kind of an exaggeration of the weaknesses that exist in the Democratic Party. And it's it's captured in this ironic line that we often see on Twitter, Dems in disarray, which people often use to mock uh, pundits for always exaggerating the problems faced by the Democratic Party. You know, and even really since 2016, the party has been performing pretty good well, I think, you know, including what can fairly be called a landslide win in the midterms in 2018, now been 10 points ahead in, in the polls for the presidency. But this kind of narrative of, of weakness and self-doubt, which actually you alluded to right at the beginning of, of, of the podcast, that Democrats are always doubting themselves. And I think this is it seems to me that it's based partly on the traumatic surprise of 2016, that everyone's kind of reliving that all the time and, and they're worried it's going to happen again. And it's also the fact that you know, the Democratic Party isn't running the sort of disciplined personality cult that we see on the Republican side at the moment. And, you know, dissent is very and debate is very much tolerated. But it, so so before kind of, 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 of getting into some of the coalitions and, and the debates that exist in the party at the moment, I wondered if you could just reflect on what it might mean for this self-doubt to be lifted by a really blowout election win. You know, not just politically, but also personally for you as someone who's been a long-time activist in the party and, and obviously following very closely what's been happening over the last four years. Well, I think personally, um, it would be <laughs> winning, winning by a clear margin early in election night. Like if, say, we get a Florida result on election night, which would be brilliant, um, it would be a relief from a sense of horrid dread that has been with me every waking second and frankly most of my sleeping seconds since November 2016 um and I think a lot of Democrats and I can I can speak for myself and I'm sure that I speak for many 
a lot of Democrats found 2016 such a such a shock to our assumptions about who we were as a country that we're still still in recovery from it. And I think we have real trust issues <laughs> um, with with that. So I think um, so for me, it would be it would be a restoration of the faith that I have always had in my country, you know, as a as a politically engaged patriotic American who sees a lot of flaws in the country. Um, but also sees a lot to admire in it. It's been a tough few years. <laughs> From a party point of view, I mean, one of the reasons I created my podcast in the first place during the primary was because I thought it would be really interesting to follow the primary as a shortcut into the conversation that Democrats need to have amongst themselves. Um, because although there is broad consensus about many, in fact, most, I would argue, of the um, major policy issues in terms of the direction we need to move, there are some differences in approach and there are some differences in um, the way that we discuss it. And there are just generally differences in level of ambition. And I think there, you know, so there's obviously famously this, the Bernie Sanders wing of the party has become sort of more, um, more powerful within the party um, in recent years. But I, I don't even like thinking of it as the Bernie Sanders wing of the party because he was, I think, the focal point for a lot of people within his coalition who you wouldn't necessarily picture. Um, so, for instance, um, in this, you know, in the most recent primary, he had a really significant um, support amongst uh, Latino voters. And, you know, specifically, like there was a really interesting breakdown between younger and older black voters where you know sanders was much more popular with younger black voters than older black voters and there was real difference in terms of how the generation that came up with the civil rights era feel about the democratic party versus younger voters who don't necessarily see the party as automatically the vehicle for their political points of view they they vote democrat but they're probably more issue oriented probably a little bit less kind of partisan in that sense and I think there is a real interesting kind of y y age gap, a sort of youth voter versus older voter division across the party overall. Younger um, people who have come up, who just come from a different political point of view entirely. Yes, they're progressives, but they're, they're kind of rude into politics is from a different lived experience, whereas Bernie Sanders is very much in the lived experience of the 1960s, still very much a baby boomer. I'm really interested to see how this next generation that came of age during the climate crisis and came of age during kind of Republican dysfunction. They don't they don't come in with any sentimental ideas that Republicans are people they can operate with in good faith under the current system. Um, so they're much more hard nosed about what is possible and therefore much more insistent about what they need. So I think it's going to be really interesting. And I think, you know, what one way that we can characterize um this divide that, that's grown up in the Democratic Party, and, and I completely agree that to focus on the person of Sanders is is very strange in, in many ways. You know, I mean, Sanders historically doesn't, well, I, I suppose, you know, Sanders doesn't historically consider himself a Democrat, and actually many of the people in this in this coalition don't either. Also but, don't, yeah. Yeah, also don't, you know, and, and that brings them into conflict with what we can kind of call the institutional Democratic Party. So, you know, I'm thinking about kind of the squads clashes with Nancy Pelosi. I'm thinking about Dianne Feinstein and the Sunrise Movement, you know, and, and then Biden and, and, and Sanders. And so these are all kind of like snapshots that we, we've had of this conflict over the last few years. And it seems to me that that could be quite difficult for Joe Biden to navigate, really. And, and it's also a challenge to the progressive wing 
who mostly it seems to me have come of age in a moment of opposition and being galvanized by Trump and they are going to have to deal with the compromises that that comes with having power in and it's so I yeah it's definitely going to be interesting I I really agree with yeah. that um I mean, I think I think it's it's interesting because you're absolutely as you're absolutely right as you say, Bernie Sanders himself didn't join the Democratic Party, um, and he still formally is an independent in you know in his Senate seat. I think it's interesting though to note that as much as they might be perceived as kind of being in the Sanders ilk, the people we're talking about, AOC, Ariana Pressey, they did join the Democratic Party, right? And like you know, and they're very right. like I say, very hard nosed about it, right? They. They have, compared to Sanders, I think, partly because of the times they came up in, a much more hard-nosed, like, pragmatic determination to win political power. It doesn't mean they necessarily love the Democratic Party, but they are, um, like, whereas I always felt, my slight criticism of Sanders has always been, I felt like it was a little bit narcissistic of him to kind of want to be out here in my purity independence world. Whereas AOC is like, I will get my hands dirty. I will do. Like, remember, she... Um, shortly after she was elected, um, a big controversy was whether she would support Nancy Pelosi for speaker. Right. And in the end, she did. Right. She said, right. you know, Speaker Pelosi is a, a woman who knows how to manipulate power. And that's what she likes. You know, she she doesn't necessarily have to agree with people to work with them. And as she herself says, you know, not every disagreement has to be a fight. You can disagree within a coalition and it's fine. Right. So I think it's yeah, it's going to be interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I. I, I sometimes wonder, though, as well, so all this attention that we focus on, so what I've called the progressive versus the institutionalist debate, and, and maybe we could call it something different, but I think that, so we focus on this a lot, but then it seems to me that we also sometimes miss the ways that the Democratic, other ways the Democratic Party has been changing and growing over the past few years, and this expansion hasn't been so much about bringing in young first-time voters, which was kind of the Sanders model, but it's actually been much more about expanding support among independents, uh, voters with college degrees, and suburbanites, and particularly suburban women. And gender has emerged as this very polarizing force in the Trump years. You know, the president seems to repel women in every way, I think, you know, politically and, and, and personally. <laughs> Physically, right? And so, you know, I wonder how you think about this change that's been taking place in the Democratic Party, and particularly the the rise of suburban women as activists, congressional candidates in 2018, and whether you think, well, just how you think this might shape the party in the future, kind of apart from this kind of progressive versus centrist debate. Yeah, great question. Um, I think one of the big things that's changed is that women used to be the kind of silent drivers of the party, right? They would be the ones doing all the work. Black women especially, yeah. Black women especially, absolutely. So like for decades, it's been women generally and black women in particular who have been doing the legwork of making the party function but not get then getting themselves into positions of power from it, right? It's almost like they were doing it as service. And I think what's happened after 2016 is a lot of the women, those women and new women coming into the, to the party, they just went, hell with that, right? Like, I'm not going to sit back. I'm going to work just as hard, but actually in my own name and in my own right and stand up because 
And I think, you know, for a number of reasons. One, there was just sheer rage that people people felt they had to really make a more visible stand. But also, I think there was a real feeling of like, you know, if this man can get himself elected, <laughs> right. how do I dare to claim that I'm not qualified? Like, what? where's my insecurity coming from? So, you know, a lot of women who had been, um, you know, driving forces in the party, um, you know, became became the forces, faces, faces and voices of the party. Um, and that's that's all to the good. I think that's fantastic. But it does create this divide. And I think there is, um, you know, there is a the the polling suggests that we will have by far the largest gender gap ever in this election, even, you know, no matter who wins. Um, and it's not, you know, that's ultimately not what you want. Right. And I think Joe Biden has been very careful to try and run the kind of campaign that, quite frankly, slightly misogynistic men can still support right <laughs> yeah. and you know that doesn't it doesn't mean that he himself is in any way misogynistic but i think he's just been very careful to say like you know you don't have to be perfect you can be on my side that's fine too um which has been you know it's been interesting to watch and it's probably politically pragmatically smart but he also needs all those women <laughs> Yeah, and, and actually just to, to kind of circle back to the, the previous topic we were talking about, you know, it, it's been notable that the progressive wing of the party has gone along with this as well, actually. You know, that that you know, there has been actually a great degree of pragmatism demonstrated by that wing of the party in recognizing these constraints that Biden's operating under and, and not kind of insisting on forefronting issues that, that that might be harmful for him so yeah i, I think so all, all all of this suggests you know that the the democratic party coalition is is changing the politics of the party is changing you know and that's it's been so interesting to watch over the past few years and it's going to become so much more interesting to watch if if the party seizes power and and then tries to use that power so we're approaching the end of our time. Um, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a really insightful conversation. There's so many things that we have to wait and see about, so many things we've discussed that, that could become the central issue in, in American politics or central issues in American politics. But first, we've got to get through that November election. Um, you can learn more about that election by tuning into Karen's podcast, which is called Democratically. Uh, you can use whatever platform you usually like to listen to podcasts and Karen, as I mentioned at the beginning, is also fundraising for Democratic candidates in the um, in the upcoming election. And you can find more details about that over at her webpage. So Karen Robinson, thanks so much for joining us. I hope we talk again in the future. Pleasure. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Janice Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>